Welcome to episode 19 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of the What When Wine Diet, Paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jinstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. 
New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome. This is episode number 19 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. And how are you today, Jen? I'm doing very well. How about you? Anything new going on with you? Well, still working on the book. Are you working on the book as well now now that you're in teacher mode? I am. I've been working on it today. I've had several people read it and I'm now going back through and doing the editing and revising step. So, you know, that's the the point. There's still, still some sections I need to beef up a little bit, but... Yes, I am back at work, which is why my voice is scratchy because <laughs> <laughs> since I'm the gifted teacher, I have different kids every day on like like a weekly basis, like Monday students, Tuesday students, you know, it's different every day. So every day is the, fir- the first day of school <laughs> for me for five days. So <laughs> yeah, I do lots of talking. Speaking of the whole book stuff, I feel like our podcast though is turning into the, the intermittent fasting and how to write a book podcast. <laughs> but um. Actually, I can't really talk about it, but um, <laughs> I had a call with uh, my legal representative for the book this week. And side note, sort of not really related to the book, but completely related. She actually, so the attorney, she had started doing intermittent fasting, not even related oh. to like before the book completely. I love that. Isn't that crazy? Um, yes. So she was like, actually, I, she was like, I'd always been wondering, um, like when I was younger and I wouldn't eat and I would feel better and I, you know, didn't know why. And now it all makes sense now that I've read your book. Um, so I was like, this is the perfect person to Yay. be checking the legality of my book, which I love that. That's a whole nother topic. But <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, and speaking of that is, I say this every time, but that is the new version of the What When Wine Diet, which you can pre-order on Amazon, or you can get Jen's book now on Amazon, which is Delay, Don't Deny. So, yes, yes, um, but we do have a lot of listener questions. Would you like to just jump in? Yep, let's let's get started. Okay. I'm really excited about this first question. I love it. <laughs> it makes me smile. Um, so our first question comes from Josh. And the subject is a wonky window. And Josh says, Hello, friends. I have a funny job, minister, that forces me to eat sometimes. It's a highly social job. My normal eating window is about four to six hours, but sometimes I have to open the window in more of a 16-8 scenario. Some days I'm fine to do a total fast. Is there anything wrong with a wonky window? For example, a week could easily be Monday, four-hour window, Tuesday, eight hour, Wednesday, four hour, Thursday, two hour window, Friday, eight hour window, Saturday, eight hour, Sunday, no breakfast, but I'm, but I'm eating bread and wine in micro proportions all morning, then off to lunch. Thanks and God bless. So what are your thoughts, Jen? Well, yeah, I love that question too. And I love the way he described his um, communion on Sunday as the bread and wine and micro portions. (laughs) I first want to address that just because it actually has come up several times in the the Facebook support groups about communion. Does it break the fast? And our consensus is always, look, this is a religious observance. Don't even think about that. 
you do your, you know, do what you do for your religious observance and then move on about your day. So I wanted to get that out of the way, you know, technically, biologically, you know, of course, you're eating. <laughs> Does it break the fast? Yes, but we don't worry about that because it's a religious observance, as I said. Um, so just move on about your day. Now, um, Josh's question is about a wonky window and is it okay for the days to be different? And actually, there may be some metabolic benefits to having it, you know, switched up day to day instead of having a, a set routine where your body can adjust. So, yes, a, a different window every day is is not something that's probably going to be harmful to you. It, it may have some benefits. Now, it may be a little more difficult as far as like getting into the routine. And, you know, if you have a longer window one day, some people find that maybe the next day it's harder to, to shorten it up. I know after I had been on my cruise this summer and I had the longer window for four days in a row, the first the first day I wasn't hungry at all. But the second day that I was back on my routine, I did have a little more grumbly tummy early in the day. So you, just may, you may find that, that that does happen on the days, the shorter window after the longer window. You may not. That may not be a problem for you. But... Yes, there, I think that it. you have to make this suit your lifestyle. That's why it is a lifestyle. And if some days you have a shorter window and other days you have a longer window to suit your events, you know, the times that you need to eat with people in your, in your job as you fellowship with your community, that's absolutely fine. Make it fit your lifestyle instead of trying to, you know, pigeonhole yourself into a very strict day-to-day -day window. What do you think, Melanie? I agree completely. <laughs> I think you answered it perfectly. I don't really have anything extra to add. I am glad that you addressed the um, the lifestyle or the religious aspect of it. Definitely don't even worry about it breaking the fast as far as that goes. I think that, that, that takes precedence. I think so too. For sure. But people do worry about it. And so, you know, it, it's a question that's come up, you know, over over time several times. So... I guess it's like the flip side to the Ramadan problem. Those people yeah. can embrace it for fasting. Right. <laughs> All right. We ready for the next question? Yes, yes. This is from Gabrielle, and the subject is sugar addiction strategies. She says, hello, ladies. I am writing from Quebec, Canada, and love your podcast. Just to let you know how far it goes. And I, I love that, that people are listening in Canada. This is a side note from me. I also have heard from people in Australia and Scotland. Oh just my to name a oh, Yes. So. <laughs> and they all talk about my accent and some, you know, like it's strange. <laughs> we probably sound very strange. And I'm like, what accent? <laughs> no, I love it though. Um, so anyway, that was just a side note. She said, I discovered intermittent fasting two years ago and have done it on and off since. I had a baby a year ago, and I preferred not doing it while pregnant. Although it helped me lose the baby weight, I really didn't have much weight to lose in general. My goal is maintenance. I work out regularly and find that intermittent fasting helps me be more structured in my eating habits during the day. My eating window seems to be a bit longer than yours. I'm actually interested to try a shorter eating window as you do. My problem is sugar. I'm incredibly addicted to it. I've tried weaning off of it in the past, but I've had no success. I always fall off the wagon. When I do, I can easily eat a chocolate bar a day plus desserts. 
I know you've talked about it in a podcast in the past about the effects of sugar and sweeteners, but do you have tips for sugar addicts like me? Sometimes I even break my fast with something sweet and I feel terrible. Do you also struggle with a sweet tooth? Sometimes you talk about interesting studies and techniques, so I took a chance. Just so you know, I usually fast between 6 or 7 p.m. and 10 a.m., a 15 to 16 hour fast. Maybe a longer fast would help. Thank you in advance, Gabrielle. Well, hi, Gabrielle. Thank you so much for your question. And I'm really excited about your question. I'm not so excited about your sugar addiction, but there's just so much going on here. Um, so in general, I find that when people struggle with craving sugar, it's usually one of two opposite root causes. Either they're not having enough carbs and enough sugar, not sugar, but they're not having enough carbs in their eating window. So they are craving carbohydrates and that sweetness, or they have in general a tendency to have too much sugar and then the addiction aspect, which I think is probably what's going on more in this case. There are a few different things that you could possibly do here to try and wrestle with this demon. You said you try, you have like chocolate bars and desserts. So if you can try addressing your sweet cravings via whole foods, so fruit, some sweet starches, that would probably make a big difference, especially if you're feeling, you're saying you feel terrible when you break your fast with your sweet goodies. So I think switching to fruit or starch or something like that could probably help a ton. I don't know if you're a fruit, a fruit, a fruity person or a starchy person, but if you're a starchy person, Jen, side note, have you had a, um, is it, is it the Okinawan sweet potatoes? There's some sweet. I have not. There's a sweet. No. It's probably the Okinawan sweet potatoes. They taste like cake. I swear. Oh, wow. They're amazing. Um, but yeah, so back to Gabrielle's question. That's something that you could try. A few other things. A lot of people who have sugar cravings, it's often because they have a, like a yeast overgrowth or candida or something like that. So it's actually not you craving the sugar. It's the nasty little things in your intestines craving the sugar. Um, <laughs> and so ways you could address that via like I would suggest like natural antifungals. You could find you could try adding like garlic or oregano or stuff like that to your food and see if that helps at all. Um, I mean, that's a whole another issue and you you have to look into it yourself to see if that is something that's causing your problem, your sugar addiction. Um, but that is something you could check out. A few other things. There are a few different supplements that can help with sugar addictions. So, and I don't know how you say this, but I, I have personally used it. It's like Gymnestra... Sylvestra. Have you heard of this one, Jen? I have not heard of that one. I have tried no. it. People swear by it for sweet cravings and it really works. It's a pretty amazing. You can get it like in a liquid form. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, that might be something that can help. A lot of other people have found that supplementing with L-glutamine actually can really help with sugar cravings. And L-glutamine is actually an amino acid. It does have a slightly sweet taste, but you can get it in powdered form. And a lot of people do find that that helps a lot. I have personally tried that as well and have found that it works. The third supplement, which I have not tried, is a lot of people say that uh, supplementing with chromium can help, which I don't know about that personally, but I did find some research behind that. I would also encourage you <laughs> to make sure that you're getting enough protein and fat and just enough food in general, not of the sweet variety. 
and you might find that because you're clearly craving it for some reason. So if it is because of a nutritional deficiency or something like that, then maybe addressing it through other foods could help as well. And then lastly, I would just encourage you to embrace a mindset approach to try to address it and just really ask yourself when you do have those sweet cravings, why are you craving that? Um, Like, why do you need that sweetness at that moment? A lot of people, a lot of us, most of us, (laughs) we, we crave sweets because they make us feel good. So in the end, that's, it's a, it's a neurotransmitter release in the, in your brain in the end. So we can get that some other way. If you can get that sweetness from life (laughs) instead of from food, um, I know that seems like that can seem kind of crazy, but I really think it's something doable and can make a big difference. So how about you, Jen? Well, I think you said most of the things I was going to say about the fruit. That was a great suggestion. I was going to make that same exact one. So um, I do have a couple of of points to hit upon that um, that I wanted to pull out of, of her question. She talked about when she breaks her fast with something sweet, she feels terrible And I would like to echo that I am the same exact way when I break my fast with something sweet. Just last week, the first day of school, one of my sweet students brought me this big old cookie. It was a homemade cookie. It was like chocolate chips, and it had nuts in there, and it looked delicious. And so it sat on my desk all day, and I didn't even think about it. But it was a long day, and on my way home, I looked over, and there it was in my purse. (laughs) I put it in my (laughs) purse, and I was like, oh, And it was after 5 o'clock at this point. So my window was technically open, but I had not eaten yet because I, you know, had been at work. So I was like, oh, I could eat this cookie now, and then I'll cook dinner when I get home. And now I know that that I don't feel well when I do that, but I ate it anyway. And within, you know, just a few minutes, I started to feel a little sick and blah and gross. And I was like, why did I do that? I, I don't feel good when I open my window with something sweet and sugary. And I know this, so apparently I'm a slow learner, and I have to keep learning it. So I went home and, and like, ate some guacamole, and it was I felt better right, right away after doing that. But I can't break my fast with something sweet. You know, I've tried, um, you know, a, a sweet sugary latte before, same situation. I was somewhere, and my window was technically open, and I was like, oh, I'm going to have this sugary latte because I miss it. And then I immediately felt terrible and got shaky. Um, I do still eat sweet things, but only after I have eaten other foods. So I, I do have sugary things, but not until after I am, you know, I've had my meal, had vegetables, had good fats, proteins. And then I also find I don't need very much of something sweet at that point. So if I have just a little bit towards the end of my window, it seems to make all the difference. Um, you know, cause if I start with it, not only do I feel bad, but then I feel like I have worse cravings the rest of, of that whole window. Um, I wanted to mention one other thing that she said at the very beginning of her question. And that is that she did not do intermittent fasting while pregnant. And I want to say that that is absolutely spot on. Great advice. Please do not ever do intermittent fasting while you're pregnant. Um, you know, I, I don't know of any physicians who would recommend it. And even all the intermittent fasting physicians who promote an intermittent fasting lifestyle and think it is just amazing for us, they all agree that you should not consciously live the intermittent fasting lifestyle while pregnant. So just, Gabriella, you were right on right on the, um, you were correct with that, not doing it while pregnant. So Yeah, and I would say also probably not while breastfeeding either. Yes. 
Because you want to make sure that your baby's getting the nutrients from you before the baby is born and then afterwards. And, you know, some people like to say, oh, well, you know, a long time ago when people were starving, they were able to grow a baby just fine. And your your body, but but that's that's actually, your body will take nutrients from you, from your, you might have nutritional deficiencies that, that are, that occur during the fasting if you're trying to do that while you're pregnant. So it's not good for the baby. But it's also not good for your body because you're growing that growing that human. And so put yourself to the side and just focus on nutrients for the baby and then with the breastfeeding as well. You know, you're you're still providing the nutrition for that baby. And so you want to make sure you're giving your baby everything that, that your baby needs. Now, once your baby is weaned, that's another story. That baby's getting nutrition from other places. Awesome. So. That's a great thing to address. All right. Just thought I'd put that out there. We just talked about it in the group. And so <laughs> it's a good point to make. Yes. All right. So we can jump to our next question. This one comes from Anna in the UK. Oh, so this is like the international Yay! episode. <laughs> and her subject is letting go of restrictive tendencies. And Anna says, or do they say Anna in the UK? I it's, don't know. It could be either. Probably being stereotypical and saying that. <laughs> Anna, Anna. In any case, she says, I recently found your podcast and started intermittent fasting last week. You have both inspired me. I am trying the 16-hour fast, 8-hour eating window approach to ease myself in. I get up at 6 a.m. and am managing to postpone my first meal until 12 p.m. with my 8-hour eating window closing at 8 p.m. I also go running in the morning before work, which is when I listen to your podcast. Since June last year, I have lost 7 kilograms with macro counting and calorie restriction, but recently found myself getting so hungry and feeling deprived, which led to overeating and a weight loss plateau as a result. I still have about three to four kilograms left to lose. Since I found your podcast and learning about all the benefits of IF, you've inspired me to try something different to lose that final few kilos. So far, it has only been a week but I am finding it hard to let go of counting macros and calories. I am still weighing out my food and tracking it in my fitness pal, trying to stick to 1,500 calories a day. I eat a whole foods, plant-based, vegan diet, which is for the most part really healthy, and I've been vegan since September. I feel that macro counting and weighing out my food gives me a sense of control. Do you have any suggestions for the mental side of letting go of this restrictive lifestyle? I really want to trust that the eight-hour IF window will work for me, but I fear overeating again if I stop tracking my food. Thank you so much and looking forward to your next podcast, Anna or Anna. <laughs> so what are your thoughts, Jen? I have lots of thoughts about this me one. Too, so Anna, so thank many. you. Thank you for your great question. And you know, going back to where you talked about how you've lost seven kilograms by counting macros and doing calorie restriction, and then you found yourself getting very hungry as a result and feeling deprived, which led to overeating and then a plateau. I mean, that is like you just described every one of our experiences with a with a low-calorie restrictive diet. And that is why these diets don't work in the long term because our bodies fight back because, you know, when we're following that typical eating pattern, you know, you're not having the the – increased metabolic boosting effects of the fasting. So your metabolism will slow to match that lower intake. And your body also sends you increased appetite signals 
So then you're like starving. So whenever you start to feel that increased hunger after following a low-calorie diet, that's a really bad sign that your metabolism is, is slowing and that your body is sending you the message, hey, you know, things are not okay. Um, I think intermittent fasting is um, is going to really make you happy over time as as you'll adjust to you know, your eating window and your metabolism has a chance to fire back up again. Now, you've only been doing intermittent fasting for a week, so you're well within that transition period that may take, you know, three weeks. You may even find it takes you a little bit longer since you're coming off of a very restrictive um, diet, and that is something that, you know, people, it's hard to hear. You know, the, the more you've been dieting, the, the more you've restricted and the longer time that you've done it, it can actually take your body longer to heal metabolically. So you may find that your weight loss is very slow at first um, with intermittent fasting. And you've got to give your body time to adjust and to rev that metabolism back up again. Um, now, you're you're starting with an eight-hour window. And that is a great place to start. We've talked about that before. Um However, I know that an eight-hour window is a bit long for me if I'm trying to lose weight. So just keep, keep on thinking about can you shorten that over time. Now, I have a book recommendation for you that I think you really need to read, and it's written by Dr. Bert Herring, and he's the author of the Fast Five Diet book. But the one I want you to read is his second book called Appetite Correction, and it is just a really great book that... Um, it clarified a lot of things for me when I read it, and he talks in his book about how our bodies have a way of letting us know the feedback is there. You know, just like you experienced with the low-calorie dieting and your appetite went crazy, when your body is happy, your appetite gets under control. So with intermittent fasting, you know, we lower the periods of insulin during the day. Our body is able to get into the fat-burning state. We get into ketosis, and then our body is able to increase our metabolic rate, but also we get our energy from our stored fat. So at that point, your appetite becomes corrected, as Dr. Herring says, and you're able to eat an appropriate amount of food for you. Now, the secret, though, is you've got to find the right length of um, eating window that does that for you. It may be, you know, he suggests to start with a five-hour window because that's the basis of his fast five um, intermittent fasting plan, but you may find a three-hour window gives you appetite correction. Maybe it's a six-hour window. It's not the same for everybody. I actually notice for me, the days that I'm really, really busy until later, um, like the day I had open house at school and didn't eat until, gosh, 8.30, I think is when I finally had time to eat. I got full really fast. I had a very short window and I was like, couldn't eat much. So, once you find the length of the window that gives you that appetite correction, you really are not going to have to micromanage those calories and macros, and that's the goal. You can relax and let loose of that idea. That doesn't happen right away, though. Um, you have to give yourself time to adjust, particularly since you're coming off a restrictive lifestyle. So I understand that right now that's kind of your safety net, and if you you know, stuck with an eight-hour window and completely stopped tracking and just ate according to satiety, you might actually gain weight for a while, which I know is not what you want to hear. So really work on getting in touch with those appetite cues. Read Appetite Correction if you can get it. And pay attention to his suggestions in that book for how to 
get get in touch with your um, your body's own signals. What do you think, Melanie? I think that was great. Everything that you said. So, hi, Anna. I do wonder. I I have a an Instagram. There's a girl on Instagram named Anna from the UK who's vegan who recently started IF and listens to our podcast. So I wonder <laughs> if you if you two are the same. So Anna, I don't know if you're the same, but in any case, hi, and thank you so much for your question. I love everything that you said, Jen, about the fasting window specifically and everything. So I think I'm actually going to talk more to the mental side of all of it. And I, so Jen gave you a book recommendation. I as well have a book re- recommendation. So now <laughs> you have a reading list. <laughs> um, I've talked about this book on the podcast before, but it is honestly just the most enlightening, wonderful book for anybody who has any struggles with restrictive mindsets or just mindsets in general surrounding food. And so that book is The Yoga of Eating, and it's by Charles Eisenstein, and I cannot recommend that book enough. Yes. I I actually ordered it, and it came yesterday. I haven't read it yet, but based on your recommendation, I'm excited to. (laughs) I just had to throw that in there. Sorry, I I said yes like that. Uh, Jen waved a finger at me on Skype, and so I thought oh. she was going to talk to me about like something about the audio or no? Uh, yeah, my audio. Yeah, no, I just I had to point that out about the book that I just got it yesterday. So it is on my reading list it's as well. Amazing. So I actually, when I got your question, Anna, I actually pulled it back out, and I have so much underlining and so many notes in that book. And so I went through with your question in mind and pulled out a lot of the stuff that he says. So I was going to talk a little bit about that. Thank you to that author, Charles, for writing that book. And here's some of the takeaways that I got that I think can help you, Anna, and anybody else with restrictive mindsets. Actually, before I say that, um, the first thing I will say is uh, protocol-wise, I would suggest that you try committing to just a week of not measuring everything like just as a protocol and just see if you can do that. Just commit to a week and say that no matter what happens, I'm just going to not measure. I'm just going to see what happens. And um, I think you'll find that that might actually be pretty amazing. But anyway, so back to the mindset stuff. Um, So I encourage you to, rather than having fear surrounding eating, um, you can really just see it as, all of the wonderful things that can come from this because clearly what you've been doing, it worked for weight loss, the calorie counting and everything, but it didn't make you feel satisfied. It didn't make you feel happy. I don't think you liked where the place that it took you to. So I, it clearly wasn't serving you. And so I think something we need to really think about is letting go of things that aren't serving us. And it's hard because we find things that sort of work and so we hold on to them and we're scared to try something new. Um, But if we can just find that trust and just really move forward, I think that can make a huge difference. So you can see intermittent fasting as a new adventure and a new experience. And rather than seeing it as, oh no, am I going to gain weight? Am I going to eat too much? You can see it as how am I going to grow from this? How am I going to learn from this? How is this going to make things better? Because it really will. (laughs) Um, So I think that's a huge thing. You can also know, I think that you turned to calorie restriction and that mindset because you felt protected by it. And Jen kind of talked about that. But you can know that you're also going to be, quote, protected by intermittent fasting. (laughs) Um, So 
the intermittent fasting lifestyle is ultimately going to support a healthy body composition and it is going to support weight loss in the end. So you can know that you can know that you're protected and you don't need to calorie count. You don't need to restrict and you're still, you can still have that protection without that restriction. So something that he says in the book specifically, and I'm paraphrasing, but, and this would actually speak as well to Gabrielle's question earlier about the sugar addiction, but he says something about how like denying your true appetite will only make it grow stronger while denying fake cravings makes them grow weaker. And I thought that that was just so like (laughs) epic, like so mind changing, because if it's something you really need, no matter how much you deny it, you're going to keep wanting it because you need it. Whereas if it's fake and you don't need it, like those sugar cravings or anything else, um, the more you deny it, the more it's going to just get easier and easier. So I thought that was huge. I won't go like super crazy and I could literally just read you the whole book. It's amazing. (laughs) Um, But I would just really encourage you just to embrace that sense of trust and just knowing that everything is going to be okay and just really listening to those appetite cues that you're, or to those signals that your body's giving you because they are there for a reason. They're not just something to throw away. Something else, another quote that he says, he says that if you respect what you, if you respect the cues to eat, you'll also respect the cues to not eat. So if you can enter that new mindset where you listen to your body and when it tells you it wants to eat something and you just eat it without fear, um, you can know that you'll also learn to not eat, um, not overeat in the end. Because I think once you just cultivate that respect of your body, that'll change. And I know that, um, not to make like a stereotype about veganism or anything, but I do think that shows that you you are very conscious about what you're putting in your body. So I think you're in a great place to just really embrace intermittent fasting and let go of that that whole mental struggle. Get that book for sure. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, the show notes, by the way, it's ifpodcast.com slash episode 19. All right. Thank you. Time for our next question from Sarah. And her subject is new to fasting. And Sarah says, hey, Melanie and Jen, love this podcast. I've just started intermittent fasting. Most days, though not 100%, for the past three weeks or so. I know you both went keto before starting, but I was wondering if you know if someone can become fat adapted without eating a low-carb, high-fat diet. Does intermittent fasting automatically fat adapt you over time? If so, how long does it take approximately? It's been really easy for me to skip breakfast. I think I used to do this naturally when I was younger, and I've been keeping about an 8-16 to hour fast or sometimes as much as... Oh, I'm sorry. I think I misunderstood that. She said, I've been, um, she's been doing 18 or 16, eight or 19, five, which means she's been fasting for 16 to 19 hours most days with a five to eight hour eating window. Um, today I drank a bunch of water in the morning and I was starving, but couldn't get food until two 30. Also, I had apple cider vinegar. So maybe that was part of it. I already ate Um, in my 2.30 to 8.30 window and feel simultaneously full and hungry. My stomach feels full, but I still feel a little faint. Any suggestions you have are appreciated. Thank you. All righty, Sarah. Well, thank you so much for your question. So a lot of, or a few different things to address here. Yes, you can definitely be fat adapted without going low carb first. Actually, ideally, that's what we're looking for is metabolic flexibility where you are able to use both carbs 
both fat um, based on what your body needs at any given time. I think that's an, an ideal place to reach. So don't stress at all about not being low carb first. As for how long it takes, it's really, it's really variable by each individual person. Um, so I, I can't really, I'll let Jim maybe talk more about that one. <laughs> <laughs> so as for, you said you were starving after having the apple cider vinegar. We actually talk about that in episode number 17, I believe. It, that probably is why you were starving or it's a very likely cause. Um, so moving on beyond that. So the main thing here with your question, you're, you struggle with feeling simultaneously full, but yet still hungry. I feel like this is a very common thing that a lot of people go through and um, there's a lot of reasoning for it. So there are a lot of different hormones and signals and such when we eat that make us feel full versus hungry. So what I'm thinking is happening with you is one of those signals can come from our stomach literally stretching. (laughs) So it's like a very physical thing. So you ate a lot of food, you feel full. So that's clearly what you're probably experiencing. On the flip side, we also get more long-term feelings of satiety, and that is going to involve the actual composition of what we're eating. That's going to involve nutrients. Are we getting enough fat? Are we getting enough protein? Are we getting enough carbs? That's separate from the, the, the full stretching feeling. So what I'm guessing is happening is that you're eating a lot of food, but you might not be eating exactly what you need to be eating for your body in that moment um, as far as food and nutrients goes. So I would encourage you to reevaluate what you're eating and make sure that those are nutritious foods that are that you are needing in that moment. Might be that you need more fat, might be that you need more protein, but I would just encourage you to look into that. I think that might be what's going on there. What what are your thoughts, Jen? Yeah, I think the same thing. Um if if you you know you you haven't you're not if you're not getting what you need, your body is going to ask you to send more food down, but you're you're physically full, you know, in your stomach, but your body wants something different. So, yeah, I think that's a great explanation of that. I I read that like the um so the the signal that comes about from for nutrients is kind of like a a delayed response. Like it 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 kind of happens after your body reevaluates everything that you've eaten, so it happens a little bit later. So that's why we get like temporarily full cuz we ate a lot of food. But then we get hungry again because yeah. then our body's like, oh, wait, you actually didn't get what I need. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it sends you back to the kitchen and you're yeah. like, you're not satisfied. You know, you're, 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 you may be physically full, but your body is not satisfied. And so it's going to continue to have you look for what you need to have. Yeah. That's very common. We're overfed, but undernourished in today's world. So I've seen that, that phrase before. So true. Yep. I feel like most right. people are. <laughs> I think so too. Yeah. All right. So I want to talk about the um, the becoming fat adapted over time. And this is Thank a great you. question. Oh, I was like, Jim's gonna. <laughs> I was like, Jim probably has the answer to that. I one. <laughs> do because I people ask this like practically on a daily basis, and I this is one of those things that I almost like. I actually do talk about it in my my upcoming book. I have a section on it because <laughs> I I've, I now I'm like people need to understand this because you know we have a lot of people coming to the intermittent fasting world from keto or from low carb high fat because you know they're all based on ketosis as being beneficial so a lot of people have you know the keto background and then they start intermittent fasting um you know to enhance their weight loss so 
you know, anybody who's been following the low carb, high fat or ketogenic eating style, you know, has been trained that, you know, it takes you a certain amount of time to get into, you know, to be fat adapted and then eating carbs, bam, takes you out of that. And then you have all this time to get back to it. And so people don't believe me frequently. <laughs> they they do not believe me. And I guess you, Melanie, when we say that we're able to get into ketosis every single day during the fast, because that appears to be contrary to what they are hearing or saying or reading in the, the ketogenic community. You know, no, it, the carbs take you out of ketosis. You can't possibly get back into ketosis if you're eating carbs in your eating window. And it has to do with the stored glycogen. And, um, you know, let's imagine that you're starting on day one, and you know, this may be oversimplified, but I'm going to explain it in this way. I think it makes the most sense. Imagine that you start day one and you have not been eating keto style or low carb, high fat. You've just been eating a normal diet, and now you decide to start intermittent fasting. So on the very first day, you start with full glycogen stores in your muscles and in your liver, and you've got all the glycogen stored in there. So the very first day you start intermittent fasting and you're not eating, that's what your body is running on, your stored glycogen. And you are not going to get into ketosis during the fast at that point. Um, and then, you know, you get to your eating window the first day, you eat, you're going to refill some of your glycogen stores. But here's the thing. Every day you refill some of your glycogen stores, but 100% of what you eat doesn't just go straight to glycogen. You have to keep that in mind. And every day when you fast, you're going to deplete more of your glycogen. And so the point is that over time, every day you deplete a little more than you put in. How long does that take? Well, it depends on you. It depends on your level of insulin resistance. It depends on, yes, what you're eating during your eating window. And, you know, if you're putting more in than other people. Um, I know someone in one of our intermittent fasting groups, it took her eight months of intermittent fasting before she finally, yeah, she finally, and she had been overweight for a while and was probably very insulin resistant. But one day she's like, oh my gosh, I have that taste in my mouth. I taste the metallic taste. I think I'm in ketosis. And I mean, she does not restrict carbs, but it took her eight months to get there. Most people, hopefully it won't take you that long. It might be three weeks, um, but it depends on so many factors. You know, if you are eating low, lower carb, obviously you'll probably get there sooner. But um, I, I do think carbs are beneficial to our bodies for the most part, unless you have, you know, certain health conditions and you, you need to eat a ketogenic um, diet for those reasons. Or, you know, if you're type 2 diabetic or type 1 diabetic. But my point is, yes, you will become fat adapted over time. And, you know, there's there's certain enzymes your body needs for, for good fat burning and also just how long it takes for you to get to the whatever point is lowering your glycogen stores enough that your body can switch over into ketosis. And then you'll find that every day during the fast, you'll get there. You know, at what point? Well, it, we've talked about this before. It's not always going to be the same. It's going to depend on how much you ate, what you ate, how much you stick back in that glycogen overnight um, or after your, your meal. When I got back from my cruise... I actually was lethargic for a few days because I think I had refilled my glycogen stores. I paid attention to the feeling. And I actually did feel lethargic because I think it, I mean, even though I was able to get back into the state in just a couple days, I think I needed to burn through some some storage that I had filled back up. So, you know, if you're not intermittent fasting um, consistently, it, it may be harder for you. The key is consistently 
and um, making sure you have that clean fast and that your fast is long enough to de- actually deplete the glycogen stores. So is that like a lot of science right there, Melanie? No, I. <laughs> that was wonderful. I've actually been, and I, you and I have been talking about this outside of the podcast. I've been researching that topic a ton. I'm sort of obsessed with it at the moment as far as like the, the glycogen, glycogen stores go. Because um, it seems like when you eat carbs and such that they – you know, first they fill your liver glycogen, which is pretty limited. And that is a reason that you can daily get into a ketogenic state. Our muscle glycogen stores are much bigger. However, as we become fat adapted and in general, if we are eating a lot of carbs, that glycogen in the muscles tends to be reserved for the muscles um, rather than the rest of your body. So I think it comes down to that more limited glycogen storage in your liver. And then like you said, um, there's a lot of like enzymes and a lot of different processes that have to be your, – your body has to adjust and become used to switching to this ketogenic type state, um, but that can definitely happen. And I don't e- I don't know, but I don't even think you have to have complete liver glycogen depletion for that to happen because our body can use lots of different fuel substrates. So And there's just so much going on that <laughs> we don't even know. Right. Um, but yeah, it can definitely happen. Actually – I want to throw in, because we recently got another question. Jen, this is going to be a, a curveball for you. Okay. But it, it speaks to the same thing. So I might go ahead and read it because we kind of already answered that question as well. Okay. Recently got a question from Chantel. Chantel, I'm not sure how she said it, but her subject was, ready, becoming fat adapted. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm going to go ahead and read that. This is like okay. a curveball. She said, um, I'm a couple weeks into intermittent fasting. I found that the 16-8 method quite easy to do, and so I've been pushing my first meal of the day later and later. I find I get really hungry and shaky around two, around two right now, so that is when I eat, which makes for an 18-hour fast. I hear you guys saying that once your body becomes fat adapted, it becomes easier to fast as your body can more easily tap into its fuel sources. Is there a way to help my body become fat adapted sooner? I'm sorry if you've already addressed this in your podcast. (laughs) I am on episode 10, but I just couldn't wait to find out the answer. You guys are doing a great job with the podcast, by the way. You're both a pleasure to listen to. So thank you, Chantel. Um, So that was a really recent question. We got that just a few days ago, but I wanted to hit that because the only thing she said in addition, so is there a way to become fat adapted sooner, you think? Well, um, did she say she'd been doing it for two weeks? I'm trying to she remember. She said I, she's um, a couple weeks in, in, into okay. it. So she's been yeah. doing it for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, this is this is absolutely um, typical for the adjustment period that around, you know, a certain point you start to get shaky because your body is like, okay, you know, I don't really know what to do. Give me some sugar. I'm ready to, <laughs> or, you know, some glucose. <laughs> I'm ready to, ready to burn that. So um, you actually can deplete your glycogen stores faster through um, exercise, you know. But, of course, that's going to make you even more shaky if, if you're not fat adapted yet. But um, in in Delay Don't Deny, I have a, a section on how to adjust to um, to intermittent fasting. And I actually do suggest, you know, I, I don't promote a low-carb or ketogenic diet like, like we've said earlier. I, I do think that, I mean, obviously there are people that it works for. I'm not saying don't do it if it's working for you. But I, I think that there's a purpose in our life for, for carbs for many reasons. So um, it might be odd to hear me suggest eating low-carb. But 
as far as the adjustment period goes, you can start with having, um, you know, maybe a, a low carb, high fat lunch, and then a normal dinner. And then eventually start pushing back that lunch later and later. And that can just help with the the process of becoming fat adapted. Like I said, I have this in my chapter on how to, um, how to adjust to an eating window approach in Delay, Don't Deny. So you can read that. And this is also the other time that the only time that I might recommend, um, you know, adding coconut oil to your coffee, the bulletproof coffee, that can actually help with the transition to becoming fat adapted. No, I don't want you to continue doing that. Once you are fat adapted, you want to run off your own fat. But as you're adjusting, um, that can really help. Yeah, I think that's great. I think the the exercise, the physical activity is huge. Um, just as far as the quicker that you are depleting the glycogen and just getting used to running, anything that supports fat burning is ultimately going to support your body's ability to do it. It's like practice yep. makes perfect. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Shall we move on to one more question? Yes. Okay. So this one comes from Krista. The subject is sugar-free gum and fasting. And Krista says, Hi, ladies. I'd like to start by thanking you for such a great podcast. I have two questions. The first is about chewing sugar-free gum during my fast. I know you talked about a study where just sweet flavor released insulin in mice. What are your thoughts on chewing sugar-free gum during the fast? My second question is about Miralax. I can't find any nutritional values for the product. I used to put it in my coffee in the morning, but I don't want anything to sabotage my fast. Do you think this breaks the fast? Thank you, ladies, again. Keep the goodness coming. XO Chris. All right. Yes, I have um, a couple of thoughts about that, and I think you already know the answer to the question, <laughs> Krista. And you mentioned that the um, the sweet flavor caused insulin release in mice, but there was also a study with humans that did the same thing. They switched it around in their mouth that caused them to release insulin as well. So it's not just the mice, it's also in humans. So yeah, you don't want the sugar-free gum. I'm sorry, you do not. No no chewing sugar-free gum during the fast or sugary gum also. <laughs> uh, I, I have a blog post about that on jenstevens.com about um, is the clean fast really important? And there's a bunch of stories there that people have told about how they could not believe that things like this could really make a difference until they, they gave it up for themselves and then they were amazed. So, um, you know, if you don't believe me, go read their stories because they, they were actually very compelling. So take a look at that. Now, Miralax. I wasn't sure, so I looked it up. I didn't know what was in it either. So um, I started off by just researching it. And I found out, I found some things I wasn't expecting to find. I wasn't even going in this direction with it. I just wanted to know what it was. And I found um, that actually around 2011, the FDA was investigating it. Um, they were trying to find out because there were some reports that it was related to neuropsychiatric events. That's not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, no. No, it's full of um, polyethylene glycol. That's the active ingredient. And so... Um, they, they had some warnings around that time. They said, hey, we're going to look into this to see if it's related to these neuropsychiatric events. And they ended up saying, yeah, we don't think it is. Go ahead. It's fine. But, um, you know, so according to the FDA, it's fine. But just the fact that they had to look at that um, alarms me. So I would assume that if you're having Miralax in your coffee, it has to do with um, bathroom-related issues. You know, perhaps the lax you know, it's a laxative. You... Um, 
or looking for something to help you go to the restroom with your coffee in the morning. And I would actually recommend, we've talked about this in other episodes, I would recommend a more natural approach, and that is magnesium. Um, I take magnesium every night at bedtime. Oh, and Melanie, I have to say this, I have switched back to my old magnesium type again. Which one? Wait, what did you switch from? Well, I um we were discussing magnesium in one of the Facebook groups, and someone listed this whole thing about or a link to an article about different types of magnesium. And so, um, I switched to magnesium glycinate because it was supposed to be better absorbed in the body. I had been taking um, a magnesium complex, which is actually I didn't realize it was a complex. I thought I was just taking citrate, but it's a citrate slash oxide blend. So. Um, I switched over to the glycinate and really things were fine. I was still sleeping. I was having no trouble, you know, going to the bathroom, all of that. Um, but then over the summer, over time, I started sleeping worse and worse. And, you know, I hadn't, I didn't connect it to the, um, to the fact that I'd switched my magnesium because I didn't notice a change at first. So I think that just over time, for some reason, my body didn't respond as well to the glycinate. So I think over time, um, like I didn't have as much available in my body. So I stopped being able to sleep. I started getting twitchy, like restless legs came back. And so um, I went back to the kind I had been using, which was a, a citrate oxide, oxide blend. And I am sleeping better again. And, <laughs> and um, of course, the citrate and oxide are, are known for more of laxative effects. So I would highly recommend, you know, if you're having trouble with that, Try try mag, uh, magnesium because, you know, a lot of research points to the fact that many of us are deficient in that anyway. Um, we don't even realize it. Um, take I take it at bedtime. Um, I take the recommended dosage on the bottle. And then in the morning I wake up, have my black coffee with nothing added to it, and then naturally have no trouble in the restroom <laughs> after that. So that's just my story. What do you think, Melanie? So I'll speak to the magnesium first since we're discussing it. Um yeah, so I personally take Natural Calm, which is the citrate version, and I've talked about this before on the podcast. And then I take um, I take lots of magnesium. Um, <laughs> there's like an ionic version that you can take, kind of like a shot, <laughs> like it's very small. I will put a link to those in the show notes. You can also do transdermal magnesium. That's where you rub it into the skin. And I've talked about this before as well. But when you do start using that at the beginning, if you are deficient in magnesium, which most of us are. It can be a little bit painful. Uh, it stings because your your body basically sucks it in so fast that it makes your skin sting. Um, so we'll, we'll put links in the show notes to all of these different magnesiums that we use. I as well, going back to the Miralax thing, is it a problem that when I read Miralax, I knew that the main ingredient was the polyethylene glycol? <laughs> That's how much, yeah, uh, as I've talked about before, I've had... Um, struggled a bit with digestive issues and such. So this does speak to me, um, but I would definitely encourage you, Chris, to not do the Miralax, please no, <laughs> um, and try the magnesium. I think you might find that way more beneficial and actually benefits your body, like helps your body. But going back to your first question, Chris, I did, so I found actually a fascinating study. Um, I like how you talked about the sugar aspect or the sweetness aspect of it, Jen, um, but I found a study about the actual chewing of the gum. And so it was looking at patients who had uh, surgery and how that affected their bowel movements, actually. 
So they wanted to see how chewing gum would affect actually the GI tract and that whole system. And it's very fascinating. They found that those who chewed gum actually became hungrier three hours before those who didn't chew gum. Those who chewed gum had a bowel movement eight hours earlier than people who didn't chew gum. And those who chew gum also had, they called it bowel movement sounds. I don't <laughs> even know like what that is. Um, but they had that. Or- <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's really funny. I don't want, I do not want to have that sound. I, I was like, I'm not sure exactly. <laughs> what that means but uh they got those four hours before people who didn't chew gum so apparently chewing gum gets the whole digestion and the whole tract moving so i don't think it's the best thing for the fasted state that was my takeaway because it's it's obviously starting to get more um serious it's it's obviously like starting the digestive process in a way downstream i mean and so many of the things that we do nowadays are confusing to our bodies. I mean, our bodies know sweetness means food. Chewing means food. So, like, at no time in history were people just, like, randomly – I mean, I don't know. Maybe they chewed tree bark. I don't know. But I, I don't think people <laughs> were ch- – you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't think people have, over the course of human history, just been randomly chewing unless they were eating. Yeah, I don't think so. So our bodies see these as food signals. And so, of course, they think that we're, we're going to feed – that we're eating. Yeah. So. I mean, that's crazy, though. Eight hours wow. they had a bowel movement. Eight hours earlier when they chewed gum. That's so, so interesting. So don't chew the gum. And the fact that it made people hungrier in the study. Because I know so many people, yeah. they think that it's actually making them less hungry. And then, Yeah, and, but apparently it's yeah. not. Yeah. So we will put a link to that in the show notes. You can go to ifpodcast.com slash episode 19. I know we're going really long, but there is actually, there's a, we have one quick question that sort of relates and it's really quick. Do you want me to read this one from Annie? Um, sure. sure. She says, um, her subject's ketosis. Hi, Melanie and Jen. I have heard you guys mention a lot about entering a state of ketosis. How does one know that they have started burning ketones during their fast? Is there a way of telling without feeling like you're burning ketones? Love the podcast. Keep it coming. So as far as and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. I mean, you can do two actual analysis. You can do, you can check urine analysis, which that's what a lot of people do. They get like these keto sticks and basically they turn a certain color. <laughs> you um you urinate on them. And if they turn a pink or a dark purple, that shows that you are excreting ketones. However, caveat to that point, that doesn't necessarily indicate that your body is using those ketones um, because they are coming out. So you might be generating ketones, but not actually using them. So it's a little bit complicated. Um, So some people even find that as they become more ketogenic, the strips actually stop indicating that they're making as many ketones, but it's because they're actually now using those ketones rather than like peeing them out, basically. A more accurate way to measure ketones would be through breath analysis, um, so you can get strips for that as well. They're just, they're really expensive. <laughs> I want to buy some. Um, no, but... you know they have the breathalyzer that you blow into. I have that. Is it not <laughs> too expensive? Well, it's like 100 bucks or something. But, then, but do, do you have to buy this? No, buy... you don't. There are no strips. You just oh. blow. No, it's not strips. There, you might be oh, getting. Oh, I'm thinking of, I am so sorry. I'm thinking of the, the blood test. Yeah, there's, so there's three ways. I steered you wrong. Okay. 
fail. Jen, take over. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I failed. <laughs> the the breathalyzer, it's called Ketonics, and I bought one when I was doing keto back in the summer of 2014 when I lost no weight on keto, but right before I started intermittent fasting. And so I was using it while I was eating keto style to measure, you know, was I in ketosis? And so you like, I guess it's like, you know, you're getting a DUI check, you blow into it. And, um, it registers with colors to let you know how how much how many ketones are coming out, and you know. So it's like a one time. No, purchase. you you want it's a one time. I mean, like, yeah, I mean yeah. like a one time investment. Yeah, one time investment, and then you just can keep using it. So that's how I actually knew I was in ketosis during intermittent fasting because I got used to knowing what it felt like in the breath and how I felt when I was in ketosis. And the ketonics always verified it, you know, when I was doing keto. So I was like, okay, I know what this feels like. So when I switched to intermittent fasting, I, like like I talked about earlier, like the people who do the keto diets, I was surprised that I was still getting into ketosis every single day, even though I had reintroduced lots and lots of carbs, like all the carbs I wanted. But I knew, I, I was like, wait, this is the, the taste I got from, you know, being in ketosis. And I verified it with the ketonics. So... Um, it, I, whenever I had that feeling and that breath, I would blow into it and there it was. So I, I verified that yes, indeed, I was still getting into ketosis. Now the blood test is the one that has the little strips and they are very, very expensive. Right. Those are the ones that are really expensive. I looked into it and I was like, nope. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> no can do. You can use the same machine that you use to measure blood glucose, but the strips are different. Right. And so it, it is the 100% most accurate because it measures actually the ketone level in your actual blood, whereas the breathalyzer only measures what you're excreting through your breath, and the um, the urinalysis only measures what you're excreting through your urine. And as Melanie mentioned, if your body is great at using the ketones, you may not excrete as much because um, you're using them. But the blood test is gonna is gonna find it. But here's my other advice: don't worry about that. <laughs> You do not need, you don't worry about when it happens. Trust that it will. You know, you will eventually, if you are fasting clean and if you are feeling good, if you have energy, high energy during the fast every single day, then you can feel good about the fact that you are burning ketones. Um, you know, like I mentioned, the person that took her eight months to get there, um, she did get there and then, and she got the, the taste in her mouth. So you may get that. Um, that metallic taste. Some people say it tastes salty or just gross, a gross taste in their mouth. Not everyone experiences it the same way. And of course, some people don't even get the taste in their mouth. They just know from the energy that they're feeling. So don't overthink it or overly worry about it because we really like to measure things and know that it's happening. But just trust that it is. It, your body knows what it's doing. And so if you're fasting clean for a sufficient amount of time every day, know that your body is going to be tapping into your fat stores eventually and um, you're going to be getting into ketosis. Any other final thoughts, Melanie? Yeah, I was just going to say, if you're significantly into the fastest day and you're you're feeling good and you're feeling energetic and you're feeling like you could just keep going, that's a pretty good sign yeah. that you're in ketosis. Pretty good sign. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, this was wonderful. So many awesome questions. So everybody just please keep them coming few quick things before we go. If you would like to submit your own questions, there are a few ways you can do that. You can send us an email at questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com. You can also submit questions there. 
And when you're at that website, we also have show notes listed there. So if you go to ifpodcast.com slash episode 19, you can find links to any of the, the stuff that we talked about that we use and any of the studies that we discussed. So that will all be there as well. Lastly, if you're in iTunes, um, you can subscribe to our podcast and then you will automatically get the episodes downloaded as they come in. So it makes it easier for you. And then while you're there, if you'd like to write a review of the podcast, we would appreciate that ever so much. It just really, really helps um, with building credibility and just everything. So we really appreciate that. So any other final thoughts from you, Jen? No, these were some great questions and um, they just keep getting better and better. <laughs> wonderful questions yeah keep it coming definitely all right everybody have a wonderful week and we'll see you next monday bye thank you so much for listening to the intermittent fasting podcast please remember the opinions we discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice we're not doctors check out ifpodcast.com for more information on us theme music was composed by leland cox see you next week